electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Good evening and welcome to the CNBC special Taking Stock. I'm Mike Santoli. Jim is off tonight. We have an action-packed hour coming your way, a major reckoning for the market. Chair Powell telling the Senate the Fed may have to hike more than they planned and possibly more quickly as well. Stocks tumbling on the testimony. The Dow dropping 575 points. The S&P 500 down 1.5%. NASDAQ down 1.25% on the day. And rates on the move in a big way. The yield on the two-year Treasury topping 5% for the first time since 2007. It's spread above the 10-year yield uh, more than 100 basis points. Now, that's its widest since 1981. Tonight, we'll help you find opportunities in, in it all, taking a deep dive into the asset classes that have this market on the move. We'll spotlight stocks to watch following the Fed statement, including one sector that's benefiting from this market's hunt for growth. Plus, an under-the-radar tool for traders that could be fueling market volatility and impacting your portfolio in the process. And just when you thought you might finally be able to get a good deal on a used car, prices are spiking again. We've got the details on the biggest month-to-month hike in prices since the Great Recession. All that ahead on tonight's special hour. But first, let's take another look at how the markets ended the day. The S&P 500, as mentioned, down 1.5%. That dramatic move in the two-year note. Now above 5% for the first time in more than 15 years. Now, it was a relatively broad and somewhat indiscriminate sell-off, about 80% of all stocks down, although the S&P only going back to where it finished the day last Thursday and still actually slightly higher on a month-to-date basis or just about flat month-to-date. So it definitely uh, was a bit of a jolt to investors, but something that didn't quite uh, unwind all of last week's gains. Some of the outperformers on the day relative to the S&P, the semiconductor index, some of the other big tech stocks as well, did hold up better. Actually, defensive areas of the market like utilities uh, and healthcare did not fare as well. They are impacted perhaps more directly by those big rate moves. Let's dig in deeper on today's action with Paul Hickey, the co-founder of Bespoke Investment Group, and Mona Mahajan, senior investment strategist 
at Edward Jones. It's good to see you both. Um, Mona, I'd love to start with you here. I mean, clearly the market got a little more of a hawkish message from Jay Powell than it was positioned for, although not necessarily a brand new one, not necessarily something we might not have expected, given how strong the economic data have been. And I guess what other Fed officials have been discussing. Where does that leave you with regard to whether today's move was the start of something on the downside? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. Um, Jerome Powell reiterated the messages that we've been hearing all along, as you noted, which is uh, rates could go higher. They could stay higher for longer. Uh, But what was interesting from a market perspective, we saw two moves that caught our attention. The first was the probability of a 50 basis point rate hike. So, you know, the Fed had been considering downshifting to this 0.25% or 25 basis point rate hikes at the next March meeting. Um, Now markets are forecasting with a 70% probability, uh, a chance of a 50 basis point rate hike. That was up from just 30% probability this morning. So that was one notable move. The second one, as you highlighted earlier, was this move in the yield curve. You know, the two-year yield moved pretty dramatically higher. It was at Five over 5% today. That's the, the highest of the year and the highest really since 2007. But meanwhile, that 10-year, which is a better predictor of maybe long-term growth, that didn't move that much. So what that did was invert the yield curve even further and perhaps signal that markets are expecting a bit of an economic downturn ahead. Now, what we would say is uh, this was just one day And we still have a lot of important March data ahead. Of course, this Friday, we get the jobs report. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next week, we get inflation and retail sales. And then, of course, on March 22nd is the Fed meeting. So all of those could shift the narrative once more. And what we think is if we start to see inflation cool, especially if wage growth cools, uh, that could once again shift the narrative to a Fed that will downshift and will eventually pause in mid-year. So uh, that still remains our base case. But today Mm -hmm. did jolt the markets a little bit. Uh, with the surprise, especially on on the 50. Paul, uh, investors on some level have been hoping for a data-dependent Federal Reserve. In other words, one that wasn't just lifting rates higher in a really aggressive way to catch up to inflation. We seem to have that now. How did you think the market absorbed it all? You know, we've been dealing since early February with aggressive moves higher in bond yields and stocks. Did pull back, uh, but did uh, sort of also find some traction last week. Yeah, so I think today was a big overreaction on the part of the market. Uh, what have Fed officials, like you said, been telling us for the last six weeks that rates are going to be higher for longer and that we may have to hike rates high to a higher level? And the market has been pricing that in for the last month um, now. And then today, Powell basically says that exact same thing. And so the market freaks out. So I think uh, in that respect, it's a little bit of an overreaction. We still have a lot of economic data to go over the next couple of weeks. And just look at how quickly these narratives have, has shifted over the last three months. You saw in December and early January, we were going into a deep recession that everyone thought. Now the economy is overheating and inflation is low. I mean, and all it took was, you know, a warm January, some seasonal adjustments causing stronger than expected data. Well, guess what? February saw gas prices, which were up 9% in January, fall over 4% in February which was the second worst February going back to 2004. So I think you're gonna, that can act as a headwind on inflation, in other words, pushing it lower. So I think you know, uh, it's observation is a dying art, as uh, Stanley Kubrick once said, but there's no perspective on the market and the observation's dead because nobody is, is taking into account what the market has been telling us for the last five weeks and what we've been pricing in. So I think, again, 
as I said earlier, it's a bit of an overreaction today. Although, Mona, I guess the longer the Fed is in hiking mode and if they maybe take a larger step and if they you know, feel the need to take that final destination rate uh, even higher than expected, it leaves more time and more room perhaps for the economy to have that downturn that you said the yield curve is anticipating. I mean, I suppose that's what the market's worried about. Yet it's coming in the context of we're worried about the, the actual jobs market being too strong and consumers have been spending too much money. So there's a little bit of a of a dissonance yeah. there. Yeah, it's a bit of a tug of war between the better data we got in January versus what the Fed is doing and what the lag impact of that may be to the real economy. What we'd say is we wouldn't necessarily extrapolate this strong January jobs report at a pace of 500,000 plus jobs added, a 3.4 percent unemployment rate, Uh, not necessarily extrapolate that to the rest of the year. In fact, we would expect some softening in the months ahead, driven not only by higher rates, but just a a natural cooling in consumption, as well as uh, margin pressure on corporations. All of these have yet to take meaningful impact in the months ahead. So we would still anticipate a slowdown. Now, by no means do we see any sort of deeper prolonged recession on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Uh, But keep in mind, we would expect a period of economic softening. But we also expect if uh, the market can meet a few conditions, we probably are set up nicely for a better back half um, return perspective uh, as we head towards the end of 2023. And these conditions are basically inflation moving more meaningfully lower, the Fed moving to the sidelines at some point, and of course, earnings. They've started to show signs of real troughing, uh, but we need to see a complete bottoming process there as well. But we do think we'll be set up nicely uh, if those conditions are in place in, in the months ahead. Paul, I mentioned that, you know, we just really on the S&P did a round trip from a couple days ago and we're still up, you know, almost 4 percent year to date, up 13, 14 percent from the lows in October. Where do you think the market sits right now uh, with regard to whether it's back into some kind of an uptrend or we still have to prove that we're not really just going to retrace back to those lows, given what yields have been doing and everything? Yeah, so, I mean, I think at this at this point, we you know, the market has improving itself a little bit here uh, in February. We saw this you know, radical tightening of financial conditions. And the market in February, the S&P was down 2.5%. From peak to trough, it was down more. But it wasn't, uh, you know, it held up remarkably well for that type of tightening in financial conditions. And you come to today. Today, what uh, you talked about in the intro, we saw basically indiscriminate selling. Mm-hmm. Based every sector, I, last I looked, was down over 1% on the day. So it was pretty uniform and tells you that it was more of a, you know, just broad based asset play rather than if we were really worried about, uh, you know, higher rates for longer or pushing the economy into a recession. I think we would have seen more uh, bifurcated performance in within individual sectors and maybe the defensives holding up a little bit better. But again, Mm -hmm. everything was down pretty much today, except funny enough, tech outperformed modestly and semis, which, you know, we always discuss as being a leading indicator for not only the economy, but for the broader market, they actually outperformed the, even the NASDAQ today. So yeah. tells you internally, uh, there was a little bit going on that investors weren't, that, you know, gleanings of a, a silver lining. Yeah. So, uh, also some select uh, consumer and uh, and airline stocks did okay today as well. Mona, um, when it comes to this move in yields, uh, there's been a lot of talk of people discovering the fact that you can capture some safe yield in 6, 12, 24-month treasuries. Does that create um, a bit of a challenge to the stock market doing better? Or do you feel like the bullishness on bonds is a message that, you know, people have low expectations for stocks, which can be a bullish signal from a contrarian perspective? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Of course, the difference this cycle is that yields are meaningfully higher than really any time we've seen in recent history. Um, and in fact, you know, the old adage, Tina, there is no alternative to stocks. We are seeing a clear alternative in that short end uh, of the yield curve. So think about CDs or one or two year treasury bonds that are yielding in the four to five percent plus range. Um, really, that offers a nice alternative, but also a nice place if investors do want to play defense as we're heading through a period of potential volatility, as we get through this process of the Fed, you know, finishing its rate hiking cycle, uh, as we go through a bottoming process in earnings, as we see inflation start to roll over, we do expect a period of volatility. But what we say more broadly is um, we'd make sure to complement that short duration defensive positioning mm -hmm. over time, use this volatility as an opportunity to think about some of those longer term bonds. If you think about it, longer term investment grade bonds not only offer better yields locked in for longer, but they offer the, the chance for price appreciation, too, especially if the Fed eventually pauses and even moves yields lower. That mm -hmm. would support bond prices as well. So really interesting opportunities forming, we think, in the bond space and in the equity space uh, as we head towards year end. Yeah. And uh, certainly, if nothing else, they can they can cushion whatever uh, jumpiness the, the, the stock market throws at us from here on out as well. Uh, Mona, Paul, great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Have a good night. As we head to a break, take a look at the regional banks. They were down for the sixth day out of seven today. Those stocks under pressure after Penel, uh, Powell's Senate testimony. You see the regional bank ETF down 3.2%. The industrials also lower today, but the XLI is just 2% off its all-time highs and up 23% since October. We'll break down the moves in that sector next. We're just getting started here on the CNBC special, Taking Stock. Tonight, the hunt for growth. Fill your basket with industrials? Plus, will the rubber meet the road? Navigating auto demand for the year ahead. And how many options is too many? Tracking volatility when we return. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving.
Welcome back. Investors have been moving out of many consumer stocks over the past month in a hunt for growth, and the industrial sector is benefiting from the rotation, with a growing number of those stocks now seeing new highs. Seema Modi is here with the names and what is behind the trade. And Seema, even on a rough day for the market, industrials did outperform again. That's exactly right, Mike. Industrial selling off today, but holding up better than the broader market, thanks to the airlines on a Delta upgrade from Evercore this morning. But as you're pointing out, ever since Walmart reported earnings back in mid-February, we started to see this momentum shift with investors rotating into the industrials. Packard, Cummins, Carrier Global up nearly 5% just this month and recently hitting new highs this week. Now, easing supply chains, uh, lower cost tied to freight, plus the China reopening have fueled the recent rebound, according to Stephen Fisher, who covers the industrials at UBS. His top picks are United Rentals, Acom, and Jacobs Solutions, which provides technology to engineering and construction firms. Uh, Jeffrey's analysts, they say the market is becoming also more confident that construction and manufacturing names can avoid a consumer-led recession. They're bullish on Caterpillar, which has outperformed Perform the XLI Industrials ETF over the past six months. The best performing industrial so far this year really is General Electric, down today but still up over 30% in 2023. Wall Street is awaiting that investor day on Thursday, as well as the president's uh, defense budget and the broader budget, which should outline funds for the F-35 engine. Bank of America writing that GE has a 50-50 chance of winning that contract, and if they do, that could add an additional $1 billion in EBITDA. So it could be good news there, Mike. And Seema, what else do you think investors are eager to hear from GE at its investor day? It's been a complicated story with a breakup underway uh, and really a tough decade for the stock. It has, but at the same time, that spinoff of healthcare has proved to be um, uh, a good thing for GE when you look at yeah. shares, how it's outperformed since the healthcare spinoff. So now the focus will be on the spinoff of power and renewables, which is slated for early next year. Investors will want just a more clear timeline. And then the success of aviation. That has been something that CEO Larry Kulp likes to talk about every quarter because we are seeing this pickup in international traffic, and that's resulted in more demand for its Leap engine, which is in the 737 MAX. Now, the ramp up of the Leap engine, that will be key on Thursday at the Investor Day. About 1,700 Leap engines are expected to be delivered this year, which would be up about 50% uh, from the same time last year. But we know supply chain is issues, but GS are getting a little bit better, but they haven't gotten away. So the question is, can they meet that target? That will be a key focus, Mike. And then Seema, more broadly, um, you know, how do we explain uh, the recession watch that's been going on for a while and industrial is one of the strongest sectors of the economy? Is there just this capital goods investment cycle? Obviously, we have infrastructure spending and a lot of, uh, I guess, just capital investment happening. It's, it's exactly the infrastructure bill, which, by the way, is starting to show up in earnings. This was the first quarter where we heard from companies like Caterpillar and Cummins and Vulcan Materials that actually said the infrastructure bill is coming to fruition. So there is that, plus the, uh, the expected benefits of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which does benefit names like GE that have that, that uh, renewable energy business. Um, so those are the two clear tailwinds that are helping the industrials outperform, not to mention this idea that industrials just have a, a more attractive valuation than some of the other parts of the market like tech and even energy. Absolutely. Seema, thank you very much. Great to talk to you. Thanks. All right, coming up, $50,000. That's nearly the average price of a new vehicle in the U.S. Hoping you might catch a break on a used car instead? Well, think again. Those prices aren't faring much better. Buckle up, we're breaking down the numbers next.
I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Welcome back. There's more trouble on the road for used car buyers. Cox Automotive's latest report shows that prices for used cars jumped 4.3% in February. That's the largest monthly increase since 2009. So what's behind the record rise in prices? Let's bring in Phil Amo. Phil Amo for more. Hey, Phil. Hey, Mike. You know, at the end of the day, a lot of this has to do with supply, the lack of supply. But this increase in prices in February, I think this caught a lot of people by surprise. You mentioned that it was up 4.3%. February compared to January. That is a huge month-over-month increase. We usually see this go up maybe a half a percent, three-quarters of a percent. 4.3% is much higher than people were expecting. Third straight monthly increase. And here's the other thing. Every single vehicle segment, cars, trucks, SUVs, you name it, the prices were up. And I mentioned supply being at the heart of this. Remember how the used market works. There's a wholesale market. That's where dealers at auctions like this are buying used vehicles from each other. And then they turn around and they sell them to the public. Well, in this market, the sellers have more pricing power than usual. In fact, Mannheim said, you usually don't see sellers having this much pricing power, but because of the lack of supply, they do. And why is there a lack of supply? Look at what's happened over the last three years with new vehicle manufacturing. It's been restricted because of the chip supply. That is one issue here. The other issue is that automakers increasingly have moved away from selling or building moderately priced, lower priced, middle of the road mass market models. Something like a Toyota Corolla. The Corolla obviously is still being built, but there are a number of manufacturers who said, we're out of that segment. And guess what? That's why you're seeing new vehicle prices. Yes, they ticked a little bit down in the last month, but they're still close to an all-time high at just under $49,000. I want to show you the largest auto dealers. And why am I going to be showing you this? Because what you're noticing here is they are close to an all-time high. The reason is because their revenue is expected to be very strong this year, Mike. And, it explain, and why would it be strong? A, they've got pricing power on used vehicles. And... The, you, the new market's starting to come back a little bit, but remember where dealers make about half of their money. It's in the back end of the business, servicing the vehicles. And when you have more used models that are out there on the road, and we're going to see about 41 million that are going to be sold this year, mm -hmm. you do very well because you have great repeat business in the back of the business. And that's why when you look at AutoNation, Group 1, Penske, they are all expected to have pretty strong years revenue-wise. So, Phil, we're now uh, effectively at the third anniversary of the, the onset of the, the pandemic disruptions to, to production. Yep. So that would seem to mean that the used car market is not going to really get much looser anytime soon. 
Right? No, fewer it cars it's, it's going to stay yeah. tight for a while. Yeah. Right. Because and, and remember, what drives the used car market? It's the three-year-old vehicle coming off lease. Hmm. Well, there's fewer vehicles being leased, fewer on a three-year cycle. So when you have people who have said, look, it's too expensive to go out there and spend $50,000 on a new vehicle, I'm going to go into the used market, buy something that's two or three years old. You go into that market and you say, whoa, why am I buying a 2018 model for this price? I might as well try to go back into the new market. And it's a cycle that feeds on itself, Mike. Yeah, and I imagine if, if the used market's that strong, the residual value on trade-ins is holding up as well, so therefore you can pay more for the new car. Is yes. that the way it works? Yep, exactly. That is exactly how it works. And the interesting thing, Mike, is that everybody thought we would see the trend of lower used car prices that we saw. It really peaked at the beginning of last year, and it started coming down. Pretty steady clip. And in November, we thought, well, it's going to continue from here. That has not happened. We now see wholesale used prices, according to Mannheim Auctions, they're about where they were back in July. Mm. Now, if it continues in March, and March is a higher volume month, that really tells you something about the impact of inflation. Absolutely. Yeah, not great news for those uh, investors looking for inflation finally to get some downside momentum. Uh, Phil, thank you very much. Uh, While well, tight supply has been a big factor for the rebound in used car prices, so should customers expect those price increases to continue? A new report from Employ America explains how the auto market is missing roughly 5 million domestically produced vehicles, which will cause car prices to remain elevated for at least the next six months. Joining us now with a firsthand look at the impact of these supply shortages is Jeff Dyke, the president of Sonic Automotive. And Jeff, uh, it's great to have you here. Um, I imagine this all sounds familiar in terms of your experience. How have you been, been doing in terms of you know, keeping uh, your dealers supplied and, and what's your backlog look like? Yeah, thanks, Mike, and thanks for having us. You know, I listened to the commentary there, and what you really have to look at is you got to go back uh, to the beginning of last year. If you look at what we were paying at wholesale auctions for pre-owned cars in May of last year, a little over $30,000. You get uh, all the way to January of this year, that number is a little over $24,000, and today about $27,700, somewhere in that ballpark. Hmm. And so, you, yes, you have an increase, but we have to understand why we have this increase. It is There is a lack of supply. We have some natural seasonality increases during this time of year every year. But the rental car companies are in the auction lanes that Phil was showing buying rental cars. And so we have someone in the rental car business out there buying cars that we don't typically compete against. We typically buy their cars out of the auction lanes, not uh, not compete against them to, to, to buy cars against them. So that's causing this big increase, this 4% increase that you're seeing. Now, we think they'll come out of the auction lanes as we get through the spring bike season. Um, and as we go through the rest of the year, let's start towards the end of April, the beginning of May. We're going to start seeing prices begin to come down. As we get to the end of this year, we'll see prices begin to really normalize. And then in the first quarter, uh, we think things get a whole lot better as new car supplies continue to improve. They've improved since the middle of last year. They're going to continue to improve this year. Um, and things will get a lot more normalized as we get to the beginning of next year. Yeah, that certainly is uh, good context and a bit of a relief in terms of the trend uh, at this point. Although uh, you're getting more supply from uh, from the new channel coming as I guess there's going to be some concern about consumers, you know, continue to build ability and willingness to pay up for them. Are you concerned about the demand side or or is that still solid? Uh, it's still really solid. We're not seeing a drop off in demand. Um, there's there lots of more new vehicles on the ground. Our new vehicle supply has doubled in the last six to eight months. Um, we think that's going to continue to grow. It's never going to get back to the pre-pandemic levels. 
Um, we don't see that happening, uh, but it's going to continue to get better um, as we move throughout this year. Um, and that's going to help used car supply, and that's going to help used car valuations come down. Um, this is a high right now, uh, I think, for this year. Maybe the next few weeks it goes up a little bit more. Uh, but then as we get to, like I said, as we get to the end of April, beginning of May, it's going to start coming down. And it will gradually come down as we go through the year, which you'll see dealers keep really tight day supply right now. That's smart for them to do so they don't have to deal with vehicles that they bought three weeks ago being a lot more expensive than bought the vehicle that they're buying three weeks later. Um, but I, I do believe that as we move to the end of the year, things are going to get a lot better uh, from a pricing perspective on pre-owned. That's going to give some relief to the consumer, and that's what we all want. Now, there has been some concern, uh, certainly among investors, even in the, in the bond market, about the rising auto loan delinquency rates, and even above what we saw, uh, you know, at times during the Great Recession. Is that something that's uh, either a, a, a something that's a little bit of a, a, you know, a time bomb in the market, or is there some quirks to it? I don't think it is. I mean, maybe from a subprime perspective, you see a little bit of that. That's a shrinking portion of the overall business, but it's not something that we're overly concerned about. Um, the business is really solid. It is going to be a great year. Uh, Phil is correct. The, the fixed operations business is simply on fire. It's doing very, very well. And it's going to be a good used car year. Whether it's 38 million or 41 million cars that are sold for the year, um, it's going to be a solid year. And we're projecting 14 and a half to 15 million new cars. Um, this is going to be not a year to complain about. It's going to be a good uh, automotive year. Um, and, and we've got that in our forecast. We look forward to having a great year. Our, our customers, I mean, I think the typical way a lot of Americans have always bought a car is they'll, they'll buy as much car as they can for the monthly payment they can afford. I mean, is that still the mode people are in? That's exactly right. So as interest rates go up, what happens is that the consumer steps down in terms of the vehicle that they can buy so that uh, they hit their monthly payment. And we want to see a monthly payment and a gap between new and used. That closed uh, greatly. Um, from the pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic until now, that's beginning to widen with new vehicle prices going up, used vehicle prices coming down. You know, it's going to be a little bit of a bumpy road here for the next month and a half or so. Uh, but that that gap is going to widen again. And that's going to give you uh, just a great run for pre-owned between now and the end of the year. And then things really get uh, to flow uh, to flowing as we move into 24. What kind of window do you have on, uh, you know, the demand for for electric vehicles versus more traditional ones and whether that's changing, uh, whether people are waiting for certain models to be launched or anything like that? Yeah, sure. I mean, the new car manufacturers are all coming with uh, electric vehicles now. That's just beginning. It's a small window other than Tesla uh, and, and really on the East Coast and West Coast where they have major share. Um, but rest assured, the manufacturers are coming with fantastic product. Um, and we look forward to that product getting there and getting onto our lots so we can sell them. Um, that's going to be a great part of this business. It's a small percentage of the business now, but we expect that to continue to grow. All right, Jeff, really appreciate your perspective. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. All right, take care. Now, don't go anywhere. There's much more ahead on this CNBC special, Taking Stock. Coming up, mood swings? How volatility could be impacting your money. Plus, don't fill up on bread. A three-stock dinner awaits. And demise of the machines? What the dearth of ATMs says about the way we pay. Next on CNBC. Welcome back. Near-dated U.S. options contracts on stocks and indexes are a favorite tool for many traders and new cause for concern for some market observers. In the past year, the S&P 500 has seen an explosion in the percentage of options contracts that expire within 24 hours. 
Now, many analysts on the street are raising the red flag a bit, saying zero day to expiration options, as they're called, uh, could be a force for a major market pullback or at least some volatility. Let's bring in Susquehanna's Chris Murphy for more uh, context on this whole world. Chris, good to talk to you. Thank you. Good talking to you, too. Um, as you know, uh, this activity has exploded. The, the availability of options on stocks and indexes that are listed for one day expiration or just expire each day of the week uh, has gone up. So it's not just that people discovered them. It's that there are more options available. Um, on the other hand, I, they get blamed every day. As far as I can see, people making market commentary, whatever the market does, it's the zero data expiration option. So why are people using them so much right now? Uh, and principally, what do you think it, it means for the market action? Well, you know, first off, um, you know, can't blame zero day options today. You got to blame uh, Jerome Powell. Yeah. Um, but you know, why are people using them more? Like you said, they're, they're more available. Volume follows volume. They're more liquid than ever. Um, and they're, you know, uh, for the S&P, there's a, a, a maturity every single day. Um, not to mention um, the last year and a half has been all about macro events. You know, we kind of, you know, sit around waiting till Powell talks. And then all of a sudden we have an explosive day. we got a couple more big days coming up. So uh, all that matters right now is the macro and the best place to get macro exposure very liquidly is either in uh, the SPY ETF itself or the SPY options. Right. So the ETF uh, on the S&P 500 or those options on that ETF, I guess maybe the, the, the rationale behind some people being concerned, even in the abstract for this kind of thing, would be if there was a real cluster of certain bets on certain levels uh, for the index and we went through that level and all of a sudden the people who sold those options have to hedge in a certain way. So without getting into all the details, is there a risk that it creates these kind of air pockets in the market on a short-term basis? Well, the type of trading that we're talking about um, is, is really not. I mean, it trades over the course of the day. It's, it's two-way. It's much more mixed than some of the doomsday predictions are pointing to. You know, it's, it's uh, buying and selling. It's, it's opening and closing. It's, 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 it's so mixed. Now, uh, one giant block macro trade can certainly have an impact. It certainly has an impact when it goes through the strike. And we do see those trades from time to time. Um, but we're not seeing those trades every day. The blended, um, you know, over the course of the day, back and forth, typically mostly closed by the end of the day. Uh, that's really what we're seeing. And that's not having as much of an impact, I think, as people are hoping it does. Are most of the volumes coming from retail or is it institutional strategies that are that are being implemented this way? Well, you know, a lot of it may have started as retail, but when you start to see you know, uh, momentum, you start to see more volume, you start to see more trends. You know, of course, there's going to be some some systematic trading that 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 starts to follow along. Obviously, market makers are able to uh, reduce their risk uh, from other positions. Once again, in the most liquid products like uh, SPX and, and SPY and, and uh, things like that. So it's become a combination. Um, you know, it, it did start, um, partic- you know, it started in 2021 with um single stock names, if you remember the meme stock era and, and GameStop and all things like that. So it's been kind of a, a long process. Yeah, and certainly Tesla. I mean, the activity used to dominate yes. in that stock as well. What are you seeing um, just away from this area in terms of the supply demand and, and strategies people seem to be using? We have this pullback in the market. Um, I mean, you, su- you seem to see some flow into some of the big NASDAQ names uh, from the options perspective. I mean, why would that be occurring now, do you think? 
Yeah, uh, you know, great question. And these are some of the trades that I think is are more impactful than just uh, trading in the S&P all day long. So we started to see large blocks of trades in the, all the big FANG names, Apple, Microsoft, uh, most of which was big, big blocks of calls. Uh, Microsoft was the, the put sale. Uh, they were focused on March 24th. So then we looked at the calendar and you saw um, a couple big more macro events, but really the FOMC on the 22nd. And what happened with Powell's commentary today is it went from uh, uh, the favorite being a, a 25 basis point hike to the favorite being a 50 basis point hike. And now what's great about trading uh, in the options, you could say, OK, well, the market now thinks it's going to be a 50 basis point hike. Uh, the FANG stocks pull back. I'm looking at these options. And, you know, what if a couple of these data points come in and it, and it goes back to being a 25 basis point hike? Well, then you might see a bounce in those names and we kind of track that flow. And we think that that's what those trades were kind of targeting. Interesting. Yeah. So laying the groundwork for maybe a cheap relief rally trade, even while everyone's consumed with uh, worrying about where the Fed's going to go. Interesting. Chris, uh, really appreciate uh, you running through all this with us. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Let's take another look at how the markets ended the day. The major averages all ending uh, down with those losses accelerating after Powell's testimony on the Hill. The two-year yield, however, gaining on the day, sending the, the uh, two-year to 10-year yield spread even lower. It is sitting at its lowest level since September of uh, 1981, so nearly one percentage point inverted. Uh, inverted yields are often a sign of an expected recession. Now, all S&P sectors ended the day lower, with financials and real estate ending down more than 2%. On a relative basis, consumer staples and industrials were the day's best performers, though still they ended in the red as well. Coming up, we are all over the after-hours action in CrowdStrike. Shares on the move after reporting results. We'll tell you how to trade it. Welcome back. It's time for a three-stock dinner. We're tracking three of the day's movers and digging deeper into how to play them. Joining us to take a closer look at the names is Delano Sapporo, founder at New Street Advisors Group and a CNBC contributor. Delano, great to have you here. Uh, let's start off with Meta. Shares of that stock well off the highs of the day after earlier climbing on reports that more layoffs are on the way with the company, along with a fresh round of legislation against TikTok, perhaps, which could help drive Meta's reels business. So, Delano, this is a rare stock that's doubled off the lows, but is still at half of its peak historic value of about a year and a half ago. So what's your take? You know, yeah, you're right. It's been an analyst favorite since the start of the year. And those people that were lucky enough to to buy it at the trough have done pretty well. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people are wondering if it was structural issues, if it was macro issues. I think it was actually a little bit of both uh, when you saw the, the stock take a hit. Um, and now there's the recovery story, the turnaround. I think they fixed some of the structural issues. The consumer and, and ad spend might be in a little bit better position than we initially thought if you look back six months ago. Um, and they've done a lot to focus on profits. Um, which with growth slowing, investors want to take a look at the bottom line, and they've done a lot to focus on the cost structure. So I think this is a hold and, and something that I've been holding. Um, and I think if you're looking at it, uh, also with the buyback, that's going to do something that's going to help stock sentiment um, for the foreseeable future. So I think this is one that you'd want to keep holding. Is the potential TikTok ban a big reason to hold it, or do you feel like that would be a bonus, or would they be a beneficiary in that scenario? You know, you know, I think, you know, that's heavy competition for Meta. But for Meta, I obviously look at, you know, having 2 billion people 
uh, individuals on their family of apps. Um, and from my standpoint, I want to continue to see growth and profitability. Competition is always going to pop up, and I think they've usually done a good job of either trying to acquire or mm -hmm. copy um, some of the products or do some things to, to kind of mitigate that risk. Um, but for me, I'm looking more at the, the company. Yeah. And that competition, they've always done a good job of pivoting from that. I don't think the band plays a big part here. I think that's something that we'll you know, see get worked out. But I think it's more focused on what Meta is doing intrinsically is going to mm -hmm. be the big focus. All right. Next up, Goldman Sachs highlighting Amazon as a top e-commerce pick for 2023. So, Delano, what are your thoughts on this one? It's really been a, a broken stock for a little while. Yeah, it has been a broken stock, and it's been one that I've been holding for a while. And I think if you look at, you know, just from the AWS side, you know, things are, are maybe a little bit broken, but they're, they're, they're a little bit bent, but they're not broken. It's still a clear leader in, in cloud computing. Um, and, and the slowdown, I think, is kind of purely macro driven if you look at you know what's been going on in the environment and now that we know the consumer may not be in as worse position as we thought um, you know that's an opportunity for us to continue to see retail and e-commerce you stay steady um, throughout 2023, and that might be a big, you know, driver to the upside for Amazon. So this is a company that, you know, they also focus on cost efficiency. So capex grew a lot between 2018 and 2022 at a compound annual growth rate of about 48%. So now that all big tech companies are focusing on that cost efficiency, this might be an opportunity for you know investors to be buying Amazon, a particular area where they've been struggling um, and wait for that turnaround. Yeah. All right, lastly, CrowdStrike, the software stock jumping after reporting beats on the top and bottom lines and giving strong guidance for the year. So uh, what do you think? Would you buy this one up uh, 6% here? Yeah, so this is one that's going to be a volatile ride for investors. Obviously, a newly, you know, kind of newly IPO'd stock, even though the company's over over a decade old. I think, you know, when you look at security and you look at IT spend, we all thought, you know, IT spend or enter enterprise spend will come down a little bit. But security is one that's not softening as much um, as as other areas of enterprise spend. So I think that's a positive for the company. Um, corporations and governments continue to spend. Um, it's still unprofitable on a gap basis. So if you're an investor, you're going to have to look at how much you're willing to pay um, for growth for a company that's still, you know, struggling to get to profitability. Um, if you want to take a chance on the stock, it's something that you want to do with, you know, a little bit of capital that you're willing to to foresee with that. But on the positive side, again, they have minimal uh, minimal debt. They have a lot of cash, so structurally they're they're set up pretty nicely. So I think this is one you could potentially own. Yeah, and I mean, trading at less than half where it traded a year and a half ago. So I mean, at some point, people were willing to really put a huge multiple on those sales when they were much lower. 100%. They were where they were much lower, and now there's an opportunity where they're a lot. It's a lot more attractive at this opportunity. And if you're looking past, you know, things right now, this is a company that you want to hold for a little bit because they're in a growth industry, and this industry is going to keep growing. And if they're continuing to eat up market share, it could be a potential benefit for for investors there. Delano, great to catch up with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Mike. All right, take care. And a quick programming note. The CEO of CrowdStrike joins our own Jim Cramer tomorrow for a post-earnings exclusive in the 6 p.m. Eastern time hour on Mad Money. And it doesn't end there. Be sure to catch the premiere of CNBC's new show, Last Call, with Brian Sullivan. That kicks off tomorrow at 7 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, could ATMs go the way of the telephone booth? As we move toward a more cashless society, we'll debate what it means for the way we pay. Welcome back. Well, tonight's big number, 451,000. That's the total number of automated teller machines in the U.S. by the end of last year. Now, that's down from 470,000 in 2019, and that's according to data tracked by research firm Euromonitor International. 
we seem to have reached and come down the other side of peak ATMs. So what does it mean for the way we pay? Joining me now is Kendrick Sands of Euromonitor International. Uh, Kendrick, it's good to have you here. Uh, I guess we, we all know it, uh, through our own experience that uh, cash is a little bit less prevalent. Uh, what do you think it means long term for ATMs? Um, is it going to be a kind of a constant decline or is there going to still be uh, some kind of core cash user that's going to need a lot of them? I think there's there's no doubt they're going to continue to decline. Um, I mean, just we've seen cash in general move from being the most dominant payment vehicle uh, 10 years ago to just uh, 16% of total consumer payments in 2022. So there's the demand just doesn't match up. Now, uh, the decline that you're tracking here, I assume it's all ATMs. In other words, those that are part of a bank branch as well as some kind of standalone vendor ATMs? Yeah, it's more the standalone uh, providers that are cutting back the number of machines. Um, banks are going to want to keep an ATM presence as they pull back branch network. Um, probably increasing the capabilities of some ATMs. Right. Um, how big a business was that? I mean, just to essentially be an owner of a freestanding ATM, we know people always complained about the fees that they were charged uh, for them. Yeah, it, I don't know exactly how profitable the business was, but yeah, with those, those fees, um, a significant portion of the transaction um, yeah, it was was pretty big industry. What's your projection in terms of um, just exactly how cashless we're going to go? I ask because, you know, for years, if you spoke to the CEOs of Visa, MasterCard, you know, where it was basically plastic. And now, of course, you have PayPal, Venmo and, and all those means. Uh, they would always talk about how cash is their biggest competitor. And not only that, right. but checks and, you know, Americans way different than, than Europeans even, many of them still stuck to writing checks. So is there going to just be a little bit of a, uh, you know, a, a sort of a stubborn core of people that are sticking to paper? I mean, there, there definitely will be, but I think the digital payment platforms now, like the convenience, the, the low to no cost, I mean, these are really driving adoption. And they're, they're simpler than you know, writing a check, ordering a check. So I, I, I don't see how they can compete, you know, going forward. Yeah. Um, and, and just another, um, you know, quick one here in terms of um, people complained about the credit card fees, but now, you know, we pay more uh, in a backdoor way for uh, merchant fees for credit cards in this country than anywhere else in the world because we love credit card rewards. Um, so, I mean, is that a, a part of, uh, you know, the, the profitability of the industry that might come under some pressure? Yeah, that, that certainly is at the core value proposition for, for, credit card, um, for credit cards in general. And we're seeing them become more targeted rewards, so they're more relevant. So I don't see that decreasing anytime soon. Um, yeah, pending regulation that's currently being considered. Yeah, absolutely. It's always uh, always one of those things that people to complain to their uh, their congressperson about. Uh, Kendrick, it's uh, it's good to have you here. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. Uh, let's take another look at how the markets ended the day. It was down across the board. The major averages all ending with declines. Those losses accelerating after Jay Powell's testimony on the Hill. Uh, the two year Treasury yield, however, gaining today 
uh, and the two-year to 10-year spread uh, was uh, sent even lower. It is now sitting at its lowest level since September of 1981. An inverted yield curve uh, often means that a recession is on the way. Sometimes the lead time is as much as 12 or 24 months. The optimists say it might just mean that inflation is going to come down a lot, and so bonds down the road over the next several years might, in fact, uh, just have lower yields naturally without a recession. All S&P sectors ended the day lower, with financials and real estate ending down more than 2% each. Relatively, consumer staples and industrials were the day's best performers. Now, there were some pockets of strength, perhaps in unexpected areas in technology. Uh, You actually saw semiconductors. They were up on the day. Some of the big tech stocks actually performed well. Other pockets of strength were airlines. An upgrade of Delta Airlines helped out that process, as well as good numbers from uh, Dick's Sporting Goods, uh, helping some other chain stores actually perform pretty well on a relative basis, such as Ulta Beauty and, uh, and Tractor Supply as well. Uh, this does raise the stakes for Friday's monthly jobs numbers. Everybody's going to want to know what that could mean uh, for what the Fed has to do. Now, the expectations prevail now that it'll be a half-point rate hike. Uh, in a couple of weeks on March 22nd when the Fed meets again. That does it for us. Thanks for joining us. Jim Cramer is back tomorrow. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 